0: friends, and welcome to Love, Hate, Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And
1: I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your day, anger your souls, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, we are recording this in early March. Yep. It's coming out in early April. Sure. A lot can happen in a month. Uh, Right now, we're like, we're not at war, but like...
0: We're not at war. We're
1: not at war. War is happening, and... I think I hate war in the age of social media sure. more than I hate normal war.
0: Because of the collective internet brain rot memification of said war?
1: Because of that, because of, like, okay, you and I are children of 9-11. I knew, I, like, I was conscious enough even at that time to understand there was a whole lot of armchair idiots Trying to make sense of a war and a conflict that they just they just lacked perspective on to the point where like the fucking South Park 9-11 episode had to point out to people that like the U.S. had been building military bases on Muslim holy grounds. Right. And that this was a little bit more complicated than. Well, they hate our freedom. That said, y'all, Twitter is a cesspool. And if I, I, like, I, I have more or less stopped going on it just because I cannot take the barrage of comically ridiculous takes that I have seen regarding a conflict that, frankly, like... I'm going to be honest. I was moderately up on just from the time of the Crimea conflict, Mm -hmm. but I don't pretend to be an expert on it. I just have, I, I have an understanding of what Ukraine meant to the USSR, but I don't have like an extensive background of this. And I am amazed how many people seem to think that they have an extensive background on this. Yeah. Well, and these are the same people
0: who are conspicuously absent when it's time to talk about Israel and Palestine. These are people who have conspicuously ignored the times where the U.S. and Canada and other predominantly white countries have invaded non-white countries. I think, I, I think on our social, we made, like, a post on, like, the first night when, like, Putin declared war, where we called him out as a tyrant and then we've made we've stayed kind of conspicuously quiet across all social channels, or at least all the social channels I'm a part of. Because of this exact reason. There just isn't the the common man should really probably not be telegraphing their under their lack of understanding and voicing their opinions on a incredibly complex contentious issue beyond like yeah russia shouldn't like russia and like countries probably shouldn't be invading other countries that's about as safe a statement as you can make
1: I, i just i feel bad to a certain degree because i am the one who is constantly sitting here saying like i wish i wish we as a culture engaged more i wish we were more more up-to-date on things. I wish people tried to keep track of not just, you know, what's going on in their immediate backyards, but in the international world, and vice versa for a certain type of person. There's people who have no idea what's going on in their own school boards, and they have, you know, vested strong opinions about what's going on in the Middle East. Right. But the problem is, it's hard to know who to listen to. I completely understand this. It's also just okay to not have much of an opinion
0: yeah absolutely
1: and i don't think anyone is like that i i don't feel good about not having a strongly informed opinion beyond going yeah war is a bad thing and this conflict will likely end with a russian victory i'm gonna just say that If you just look at the forces, it's not going to be an easy one, but it's ultimately probably going to go that way. And the entire thing is, at what point do other powers get involved? Because that does escalate, but also, you kind of don't want that expansion. There isn't a good answer. And we don't like when there's not a good answer. We want some John Wick shit.
0: Well, and we want some John Wichita, and at the same time. Like, there hasn't been a global superpower at war with a global superpower since the Cold War. The famously non-war war. Mm-hmm. Because ever since the advent of the nuclear deterrent as a technology collectively like we've all just sort of agreed like yeah we shouldn't let two superpowers with nuclear capabilities get to a tipping point like this and this is potentially the closest in our living history that we are getting to that point
1: yeah i mean
0: at the same time i saw a tweet that i'm i i couldn't give it credit it deserves but it it's such a Amazing point. Somebody was talking about how, like, right now on YouTube, there's a live stream of a firefight going on at a Ukrainian nuclear facility, and I have to watch a Doritos ad first before the live stream starts.
1: We are living in dystopia. That is, you know, what I don't think I could write like a postmodernist story more apt than that, right? Just oh. Oh wow. Andy, like that. <laughs> that hurts my heart. I mean, so it should. Well, it it's also just kind of like, okay, so I remember um, earliest days of the pandemic. A lot of news sources taking down their paywalls Mm -hmm. specifically on covid related content because they were like this is important you all should need you all should learn this you all should know this this information should be accessible we're taking down our paywall for this it you know it it seems like you should probably disable the ads for doritos on that but also i mean someone pointed out i've seen this pointed out in a couple of different sources that i follow that CNN coverage was like breaking news on this invasion and this thing in Kiev and and they're talking about it and they're doing and they do the thing where like even during the commercials they do, they'll do this for breaking news, put the little picture in picture while they go to commercials and they're sitting here talking about the death toll of a bunch of bombings in Kiev and then there's this super loud ad for fucking Applebees. Yeah. Like they go to this mournful, quiet, sober discussion of death tolls and civilian tolls and refugees and then margaritas at applebee's yeah it's uh it's
0: upsetting <laughs> i think that's the most eloquent take you're you're gonna get from us it's it's frightening and upsetting and there i i think you you said it Perfectly, there should exist a space or a separation between dire geopolitical events and everything else.
1: I mean, we have a whole episode where we talked about 24 hour news media and the bullshittery that is putting the marketing floor on the same, like putting the marketing department on the same floor as the actual journalists. No. Because. Uh, In a neoliberal paradise, everything is a goddamn business.
0: Yep, and capitalism is the true problem child every time. Alex, you want to talk about some silly bullshit?
1: Let's talk about some silly bullshit, dear boy. Welcome to Love Hate Relationship, everybody. Uh, At the top of the episode, we like to, you know, sometimes we like to excite you, sometimes we like to depress you, sometimes we just like to talk about whatever bullshit comes to our minds to weed out the douchebags who we hope will turn off our show, Uh, but you are not a douchebag, you have stayed. And so for the rest of the episode, we're going to take our time to do three segments. Uh, One in which uh, one of us talks about something we love. One in which someone talks about something we hate. And then we take a question from either you, our beautiful audience, or the internet. And Andy, you have the love this time.
0: I absolutely do. And this is going to be uh, a fun and, and somewhat more nonsensical one. Uh, We're going to talk about Cracked.com today, Alex.
1: Now, are we talking about Cracked.com today, or are we talking about Cracked.com today? I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) Hit me, hit me. I love Cracked.com, or loved it.
0: Well, yeah, okay, indeed, and and we will get on to this. Yes, to, to your point, we are talking about Cracked the website entity as it existed at the peak of when it existed. But before anything else, because I myself struggle with the answer, Alex, how would you describe Cracked, the website, to a stranger? Or better yet, how would you describe it to somebody from the 70s?
1: So I think my description of it is it is a comedy... It is a comedy website. If I'm talking to someone in the 70s, I'm not going to say website. I'm going to say it's a way to, like, read shit on a computer. Like, you've seen Star Trek, right? Person from the 70s. (laughs) Um, And it's effectively a digital magazine um, of humor articles. And some of those humor articles are, like, very short stories or monologues. And then a lot of them are somewhat educational content. Like, it is interesting educational stuff, things you've hopefully never thought about or heard about or learned about, presented in a somewhat explicit, very comedy-focused format. Um, I can also say, for those of you who, like us, kind of grew up on the internet a little bit, um, I don't know if crack invented the listicle. Yeah. but they perfected the form for a long time that was their primary format was the listicle article the five things you never knew about X topic that it would be interesting so that is that is probably how I would characterize it.
0: I think that's very apt and and yeah like I, as I was sitting down to do notes I was running in circles trying to define everything and I, I think you did it wonderfully. Since it's the whole thing we try to do here, I will go on to say for our internet friends, for the listeners, um, Cracked.com is a comedy website that posts lists, articles, videos, all manner of pop culture and historical topics, most always in the interest of humor and amusement rather than any direct educational merit. Uh, the site's name, Cracked, comes from the fact that it is an offshoot of Cracked Magazine, which is an old, like, 80s competitor to Mad Magazine. Mm-hmm. Did you ever read Mad?
1: Like, I never had a subscription to Mad. I feel like Mad Mad Magazine was something... Like, I remember hearing it referenced in The Simpsons several times. Yeah. Um, I watched Mad TV, which used, like... It was clearly the same brand. Yeah. And I think I came across a handful of old Mad magazines in like my dentist's office or sitting in the bathroom at some like public restroom that was nice enough to have magazines. But that's that's the extent. Mad magazine was actually a lot of what I just described cracked as. It's like yeah. here are interesting, funny topics, and it'd be like dirty cartoons.
0: Yeah, so mad was a thing that I would like I would get a Mad Magazine at the airport whenever like we were there, and that's what I would wind up reading on the plane. The whole thing about Mad is it was a lot of parody comic content. They yeah. would take whatever the the new recent movie is or a TV show, and they would completely make a nonsensical parody of it for the purpose of like, low-brow humor. Yeah, Cracked Magazine was the Pepsi to Mad Magazine's Coca-Cola.
1: Yeah. Basically, so, and Cracked apparent if I remember correctly, Cracked the magazine, Folded, like, after only a few years. Like, Mad Magazine had has pretty much, like, never, beyond its peak point, never was a huge success beyond that. Right. But, um, yeah, Cracked, Folded, and then I, th- I guess Jack O'Brien, like, acquired the trademark somewhat somehow.
0: Yes, I mean, he literally bought it from the uh, person who... Had the rights to cracked. So, as you say, uh, the website was founded in 2005 by Jack O'Brien. It quickly gained popularity, reaching a peak in 2012, at which point it was annually amassing 27 million page views. And through its content, and and just to dive into it, this is kind of one of the things I really love about it. Cracked seemed to invent a new kind of internet comedian, mm-hmm. or Maybe to put it another way, Cracked invented the digital humorist.
1: Mm. Okay.
0: Because certainly me, you might be a little bit of an exception, but I was never reading uh, newspapers in a way where I was like checking out the humorist column from you know whoever was ruminating about some weird thing about New York City. So this was the first exposure I had to such a thing. Um, it, It had a crystal clear voice. The writing was really equal parts amusing and fascinating and raw and impeccable. And just, I would stay up late on my computer reading these articles when I had a test in the morning or something, you know? Yeah. I can recall sharing articles about the top 10 deadliest snakes in the world with friends from high school. And then the next thing I would send was one titled, I did acid for two weeks straight, and here's what happened. Because that was the gamut of content available on Cracked. It was weird historical shit and poking fun at pop culture Mm -hmm. and then a healthy sprinkling of, like, vice light yeah. Level content with you know drugs and contraband and all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, and
1: you'd get you would get people who would find weird little niches. Um, I think very like I, I was an avid crack reader back in the day. I actually pitched crack a couple of times. They never took any of my pitches, but
0: um, I remember that. I remember being in a coffee shop. You telling me you were trying to get writing for cracks.
1: Yeah. Um, that I mean, we could talk about how they did a very interesting thing with how they acquired. Writers, But I think about like how Robert Evans, who we've talked about on this podcast several times when he was there, he headed up their personal experience column, which were essentially interviewing people who had either who had interesting perspectives, yeah. interesting backgrounds. So he would interview, say, porn stars and be like, this is the thing you don't actually realize about porn stars. Or he would interview... Um,
0: heroin addicts
1: Heroin addicts That was, that was, a, that was a big one uh, He would just interview people who w- You don't typically get the perspective of um, I also think of like Felix Clay Who pretty much um, His entire time as a columnist there he made a ha- he, he did this thing where he would just Write all of these articles Where he effectively did these Really awkward terrifying things To learn about them Like he attended an orgy where he did not participate in anything, but he was just like, this is how you, this is what happens at an orgy. And, or, you like know, I, I don't know why I keep thinking of sexual ones. Uh, I remember one where he hired an escort. Yeah. And he did not do anything with the escort. He literally hired this escort, spent an evening, like, talking to this escort, find, like, interviewing her, more or less. And he, he paid for her time and located her the exact same way she would locate a client. But that was that was, and it was him basically like, uh, I'm a schlubby dude who doesn't know what he's doing, but I'm going to try and access these people who are inaccessible to the average audience and give you some perspective on what life is like for them.
0: Right. And it was a different avenue of information. It was it, everything was usually meticulously researched. You had people putting in actual, journalistic effort and integrity into topics that you were not going to be hearing about in the New York Times or in an academic text or something like that. And that was that was kind of like the winning formula of the site for me, I think. The and you know, like you say, there was sex was just a thing that was talked about, but it wasn't ever really titillating. It was more just like
1: Hey, do you want to hear some fa- like do you want to hear about how Roald Dahl basically fucked his way through World War 1 espionage?
0: Yes, shit like that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then you click on that and then you go like, "Okay, that was interesting. Next, I want to learn the five things I didn't know about Joseph Stalin. Let's go."
1: And that's when you find out that Joseph Stalin really 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 badly wanted to be known as a poet. Like
0: yep, Exactly. Stuff like that. And so it was just like it's this perfect storm of, of engaging content geared at the right audience, polished in such a way that it, it, it beat out competitors. you know you, you talk about maybe not inventing the listicle. I would argue BuzzFeed probably invented the listicle.
1: No, because cracked would regular cracked actually regularly took jabs at BuzzFeed for being like, y'all stole our shtick. Okay. Like cracked had been doing that shit before BuzzFeed had even been a thing.
0: Oh, okay. Well, then I've got my timeline totally mixed up. Yeah. I mean, so just to to jump around a little bit, I, I, you know, this became a genre of the internet. Yeah. You know, you had Cracked and then you had all of the competitors like BuzzFeed, which I I guess clearly I can't say came before, but marketed more towards a like stay-at-home mom kind of audience where Cracked was going for the the edgy intellectual college crowd and high schooler audience.
1: And and the thing uh, the thing that Buzzfeed consistently did and, and and this isn't terribly to knock Buzzfeed overall. There there are reasons to like criticize Buzzfeed, but something they did legitimately do is they took that listicle format from Cracked, but where Cracked would do these long entries, they would do if they had five entries, like it was still a like five ten minute read yeah. and they would do these meticulously researched cracked was the first website that i found for like content on the internet where there were always hyperlinks to their research there was always a hyper like they might be talking about like how the egyptian pharaohs actually didn't like the equivalent of ayahuasca And like got completely ripped off their asses, but they would cite like a Smithsonian article as their research and there would be hyperlinks to that. What BuzzFeed did was still do the listicle, but they cut that content down so that you weren't – it's not that you were sitting and reading one article for 10 minutes. It's you were reading an article for three minutes and then jumping to another article for three minutes and then another article for three minutes. Right,
0: yeah. And it was this just little intellectual coke fix yeah. that, that I know myself, you, and and so many of our uh, peers enjoyed. Um, something I, I want to touch on is I think another part of the winning formula is the talent that they had and the writers mm-hmm. and how everybody always seemed to really have a super clear voice and interest and niche. And so it was incredibly easy to then start categorizing by writers you enjoyed to just continue soaking up this content yeah some of the biggest names to come out of cracked are daniel o'brien who has gone on to win two emmys writing for last week tonight with john oliver mm-hmm. soren bowie who is a writer for american dad uh john cheese who i didn't know until this is canceled
1: as fuck yeah fuck john cheese
0: yep uh katie willard david wong aka jason pargia who is the author of john dies at the end Mm -hmm. Uh, michael swain cody johnston and like you mentioned robert evans the internet's favorite drugged up anarchist war (laughs) reporter uncle
1: (laughs) yeah um so i don't know if you know this um do you know do you know David Wong's part in making cracked? I know
0: he was a co-founder, but beyond that
1: So Jack O'Brien created the initial version of Cracked and, and like he'll tell stories about this. He was in like basically an apartment in New York City, hired this like dude to code the website and just was creating content for it. At the time, David Wong had his website called Pointless Waste of Time. Mm. And David Wong's whole deal was that he was a prolific forum poster. And he okay. actually he actually did the earliest drafts of uh, John Dies at the End basically as a series of blog posts, of like fictiony blog posts. Somehow he and Jack O'Brien hooked up uh, and decided to merge their sites. And if you actually went, uh, this was back in the day, but if you actually went into the cracked forums, it still had the pointless waste of time header. Ah,
0: huh, okay. Like cause
1: and, and the idea was just like, okay, let's take David Wong's Internet Cachet and Jack O'Brien's concept and create this. And David Wong became the senior editor there. They hired on this editorial team, they would find these, these, these the people you just named were their like major contributors. Right. But the way that they got writers, anyone could pitch to them. All you had to do was join their forums and post up a pitch. And every single pitch got replied to. It wouldn't necessarily get accepted, but, like, if they liked it, they would work on it with you in the forums. And if they green, and they'd green and greenlight it for you, and they would pay you. And it, literally, you didn't need any credentials. You didn't mention on your list Alex Schmidt, who um, started off on that website... Alex Schmidt now is a podcaster. He was on Jeopardy a couple of years ago. Like he he, he has a he has a cool podcast called Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, um, which I highly recommend checking out. But Alex Schmidt literally started off as a college student with no writing experience, and he just started writing articles for Crack, and they liked his stuff enough that they mm. kept kept getting articles from him and kept publishing his articles just because they were good and interesting. And he's a super nerd who had interesting content. Okay. And then they eventually hired him on first as an intern while he was in college. Then they hired him out of college. He became a staff writer. And then when Jack O'Brien actually left, Alex Schmidt took over hosting the podcast and doing a lot of the editorial work that Jack O'Brien did. Huh. Okay. And he literally was just this like 20-year-old kid who loved the site, was a good writer, had no writing experience whatsoever, but he just pitched these articles and they helped him become a writer.
0: And that I think is the correct way that you crowdsource and freelance talent. It's it's become a a a thing to do to basically Convince your fan base to freelance for you to the point where fucking Domino's is in order to cut costs running a deal where if you pick up your own pizza, they'll pay you three bucks on your next pizza. And it's the stealth way of like tricking you into being your own delivery driver for them. Um, I think Cracked does this the correct way and the way that is not really exploitative or shitty or fails in a way that other industries do because it it creates a an opportunity. It, it, and I feel like it truly does or at least did. Um, so to move on a little bit, crack peaked in the mid-aughts um, right around the time I was like a sophomore in college, it feels yeah. like, and they made this giant push to video content following Facebook's lead because there was a moment around 2013 where everybody on the internet, and by that I mean Facebook, and then everybody agreed, decided, oh, why have people read something when we can just have them watch it? And let's, yeah. let's push to video.
1: Pivot to video.
0: Pivot to video. Crack did this and really suffered for the change, which led eventually to a mass layoff of just about everybody I just listed who you pointed out were kind of their top guns, their major yeah. Uh, contributors.
1: Yeah. Um, are, you, are you familiar with E.W. Scripps? No. So E.W. Scripps is the is, – I don't think they're a venture capital group, but they're a media conglomerate. They had bought Craft, mm. And, like, they, they were kind of instrumental with this pivot to video thing. But when – for those of you who don't know, this could be an entire hate segment on its own front. But the way that Facebook basically destroyed internet content. Yeah. Because what would happen is as everyone pivoted to video, it would get shared on Facebook, watched in the Facebook page – but people weren't clicking over to the actual hosting site. So Facebook got the views, Facebook got the revenue, and cut out so much of the actual providers. So all the advertising dollars went to Facebook. Sure. And Facebook was so ubiquitous, it was effectively the web browser for so many people that it just fucked everybody. EW Scripts, which again is a like conglomerate corporation, was like, okay... This is hemorrhaging money. The brand is still worth something. Uh, Tell you what we're going to do. We're going to lay off pretty much almost all of the full-time staff, which are all those incredible contributors that you just talked about. And we're just going to keep a handful of full-time staff now who are going to be our major editors. And we're just going to keep crowdsourcing freelancers for the written content, which is infinitely cheaper to produce than the video or any of this stuff. Um, If you actually look at cracked now like some like I actually still follow them online and something that they do is like they'll put up a question and it's like give a tell us a story like tweet us your story of like a ridiculous job experience and be featured on cracked and then they'll skim those comments take people's tweets They'll credit them. They'll like say, "Oh, this person's story." They're not going to pay you for it, but then they'll basically make it a meme content and do a BuzzFeed stylistical of it.
0: Right? Yeah, I am on Cracked right now at this second to point out that it still exists, um, but the site visually has become a lot more watered down. A lot. It it looks like BuzzFeed, and it's it's a lot of like nerdy movie stuff about Spider-Man and Ghostbusters Afterlife and there's video game content and then peppered in is like five lessons learned on the road as a lady comedian, which could have been a cracked article 10 years ago and stuff about the FBI and and what the top 10 major salaries in the FBI are. And so like the bones of it are still there, but it just doesn't look the same. It, it, It feels a lot less polished and a lot more streamlined in a way that I feel like really doesn't do a good service to it. It looks too much like everything else now. Like I just said, it looks too much like BuzzFeed. And I want to pivot into talking about how, again, I feel like Cracked really was a pioneer in this kind of internet content that is now oft imitated today. And normally it's in a more niche format. Um, I used to go on a bunch of these sites kind of trying to get the fix that Crack used to provide. I'd I'd go on Pajiba and ScreenRant, which were both like Cracked, but it's just movies or Den of Geek, which was Cracked, but it's just comic books. Oft imitated, never quite perfected in the same way, which really is a shame because I was trying to think about what is important about this? What is important about the crack that you and I knew and loved? And I think the thing of it really is, is it was a avenue for education presented in a way that was enjoyable and engaging. And so it's a way to teach young people about history or just even even just pop culture or general life experience that was so much more fascinating and compelling and something that people would want to stay on and click the next article on than reading about it in a book or listening to a news report about it or any other like format like i think now pound for pound probably the best thing you can do to imitate this experience is go on twitter and follow most of the Cracked team. I
1: was going to say, like, after after the mass exodus of people, a lot of them went off to do other projects. Right. You know, David Wong, now Jason Pargin, stayed on at Cracked for a while, and then he actually has left and just become a full-time novelist. So you can read his novels and you hear the listen to the, like the podcast that he appears on regularly. Yep. Jack O'Brien actually hosts the Daily Zeitgeist, which is a five day a week news podcast that I follow. It's one of my main news sources. Robert Evans also went over to the iHeart Media side and has founded Cool Zone Media with them. He does the It Can Happen Here podcast, Behind the Bastards, which we've talked about extensively, and he's doing journalism for Bellingcat. Um, Cody Johnston and Katie Stoll. Who were big people at, at Cracked? They did the Some More News Network, which is a weekly news show. You mentioned Soren Bowie; he's doing Amer- he's writing on American Dad. Daniel O'Brien is writing on um, is writing on Last Week Tonight. They have a podcast together. I don't remember. I, th- I think it's called Quick Question with Soren and Dan. I
0: think so. Yeah, something like that. Just as a blanket statement, everybody. We've talked about has a podcast yeah. at this point. Michael
1: Swaim started the Small Beans Network, which does a bunch of different podcasts. Um, Tom Reinman and Abe – I know his Twitter handle is Abe the Mighty, but um, an- another couple of cracked people. They have a podcast network called Gamefully Unemployed, which is all about video games and movies. Mm-hmm. Um Katie Willard is a PA in LA and fabulous and living her best, I think, lesbian life. Um, You know, all these people have gone on to do really interesting, great projects. It's funny. I think about Crack now and I think about it the way some people talk about like the Dana Carvey show. Mm -hmm. Like if you ever, if any of you have ever heard the story of like the Dana Carvey show, it was a... it was something that gave a lot of people who we know now as really influential comedy personalities and writers their start. Right. Um, I think Steve Carell was on it at a very early point. Um, it gave Louis C.K. his big break, for better or worse. Um, there, there were a lot of people who worked on that show and it was or or you know what else? Roger Corman. Like if any of you, I think we've talked about this on the show, Roger Corman Um, a lot of directors got their start working on Roger Corman projects, including James Cameron. And they called it kind of a finishing school because Roger Corman did these D list made for no money. Like let's just get an excuse to, for a bunch of like sex and violence movies, but because they were so low budget and shitty, these directors kind of got a crash course in how it is to make a decent movie with no resources. So you don't get, terminator without james cameron learning how to make a budget learning how to make a low budget movie look great from working with roger corman it was this kind of finishing school for a lot of really really great content creators and also again cannot emphasize this enough the format itself yeah it again i don't know if it invented the listicle but it definitely perfected it 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 was one of the This internet format that is almost a meme unto itself at this point is now so ubiquitous, and it was very much perfected on this one kind of weird, kind of random little corner of the internet that started because Jack O'Brien got this trademark. Jack O'Brien, who was the child of a college basketball coach, And wanted to be a writer, so he started this thing in his New York apartment, hooked up with David Wong, who was a guy who worked in insurance and wrote at night, and was just a big early internet person, and the two of them effectively created this entire weird lightning-in-a-bottle digital magazine that is... If, even if it's not recognized, it is so important to the internet as a cultural entity.
0: Yeah. My final word, I, I can't get it out of my head because I, I this wasn't even in my notes. I kind of keyed on it as we were talking. The advent of the digital humorist. The keyword word being humorist, which I think is an important aspect of any society. You need the people who are going to sarcastically critique and point out the flaws and advocate for something better, but do it in a way where it's so charismatic that everybody wants to listen to it. Um, I, on Netflix, a few months ago when it came out, I watched, um, this short mini series called pretend it's a city. And it's this little docu series about Fran Lebowitz. Oh, who I like did not know. Oh, Fran Lebowitz is great. Yeah. Fran Lebowitz is amazing. And she was a, New York New York Times columnist humorist who was doing the same shit talking about like all the weird crazy nonsensical shitty things about New York and that was a role in society that this person served and I would argue that Cody Johnston and Robert Evans are doing the exact same thing and cracked was the new format for the new evolution of this Component of society that I'm sitting here saying is like an important and necessary aspect. Yeah. And, so
1: and what it is now is just funny people on Twitter. Exactly. For better or worse.
0: And the only or way TikTok. The only way, yeah, exactly. The way to find that is to search out on new forms of social media for this same, um, this same personality. Yeah. But cracked was a mecca. For them to to come to and to hear their voice, and so I I love what it was and lament what it's become.
1: Sure, you know, once upon a time, like I, I, I'm gonna just say this: um, any of you who are on TikTok and follow certain types of TikTok creators, call me Chris, Straw Hat, Goofy, um, any of those folks, you don't get them without Cracked. Yeah. Not because I think Cracked was necessarily a direct influence on them, but the culture that allowed them. To become the figures that they are, the internet humorists that they are, you don't get that without craft.
0: Yeah, so a uh, a moment in history that is arguably passed. Arguably, but- for anybody who who has not heard of it, maybe it's a little too late, but. Important to talk about it and important to talk about its own importance.
1: I appreciate that. Thank you, dear boy. Yeah, you're welcome. You ready to move on?
0: Yeah, something that is a a moment
1: in history still happening. Unfortunately. Uh, Annie, this is going to be a plain and simple intro question. When you hear the name Machine Gun Kelly, what associations do you make offhand? So,
0: my favorite association with machine gun kelly is how he very recently famously married um what's her name
1: megan fox megan fox did they get married or are they just engaged
0: they got married is, is my understanding but whether they got married or engaged there is a bunch of pictures on social media of them together and she looks like megan fox And he looks progressively more run down and ragged and like this very life force is being sucked out of him. Mm. And that's enjoyable to me because really the only thing I know about Machine Gun Kelly is he's kind of a piece of shit.
1: Kind of a piece of shit. I'm not going to front. Okay, this is going to be fun then. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, My story with Machine Gun Kelly kind of has the before tickets to my downfall story and the after tickets to my downfall story okay um but i'm gonna start with the basic background on the man because there's very possibly a lot of you who don't necessarily know who i'm talking about or if you're like somehow old you might think that i'm talking about the old gangster machine gun kelly from whom this asshole stole his name um so born in houston texas to missionary parents in 1990 motherfuckers a year younger than me Colson Baker, better known by the stage name Machine Gun Kelly, or MGK for short, is an American rapper, singer, and actor. His childhood was largely characterized by frequent moves all across the U.S. and the world, including stints in Germany and Egypt for a time, before he ultimately settled in Denver for a bit of time in his teenage years. Um, It was there that he discovered the music of Eminem, Ludacris, Uh, and DMX, who he claims is his idol, his Mm. favorite musician of all time. Okay. As well as Guns N' Roses and Blink-182. In 2009, he successfully won two nights at the highly competitive Apollo Theater Open Talent Nights, the first rapper to ever do so. And if you don't know about, like, the Apollo Theater Competition Nights, this is the shit where, like, Jackie Wilson got his start. This is where the Jackson 5 kind of cut their teeth these were heavy competitions where mostly black artists would go up and effectively try and wow an audience that is famously if you if you are any kind of bad they will boo you off the stage Uh they are vicious you have to earn your spot there he won two nights there as a rapper and no rapper had ever won at the apollo so I'll give him kudos to do that. From there, he was uh, featured on MTV's Sucker Free Freestyle. Uh, he began working on a series of uh, self released mixtapes that eventually led to a feature in Double XL. He did a performance, and Sean Puffy Combs, Diddy himself, was in attendance and was so impressed with him, he signed him to Bad Boy Records. Uh, and that was in 2011. In 2012, he was featured as one of XL's top 10 freshman class alongside Macklemore, French Montana, Iggy Azalea, and Future, among a few others. But those are kind of the biggest ones of that class. Mm-hmm. And he released his first album, Laysa. He went on to release two more rap albums, an album of some rap, some rock, and some pop punk tracks, and then 2020's Tickets to My Downfall a holy pop-punk album that debuted at number one on Billboard, the only rock album that year that charted that high. Which is incredibly
0: upsetting. Um, Yeah, I mean, so just before you, you move on, I know a big thing was a lot of people were saying that Machine Gun Kelly is the millennials Eminem. He is the white boy rapper who was up and coming and offensive and interesting. And it's hilarious because I think one of the things that was like Machine Gun Kelly's first great claim to fame was getting into a a diss fight with Eminem and, and getting into beef online and on Twitter. Um,
1: Do you know the story behind that beef? I don't remember. Okay. I can tell you. I it was it was it was I referenced it in my notes, but it's worth mentioning here. Uh, basically, Machine Gun Kelly, who we have to say was an Eminem fan, um, there was a posting for Haley Jade Smith, Eminem's daughter, um, where you know that she just posted a photo online on social media that Machine Gun Kelly saw, and started talking about how she was hot as fuck online. she was 16 at the time oh yeah he's a grown ass man and Eminem took umbrage with this and called him out for it because you know you probably shouldn't be talking about how hot 16 year olds are right and in Machine Gun Kelly's head he's probably sitting here going like oh my god Haley Jade the Haley Jade who was on fucking my dad's gone crazy off the Marshall Mathers LP in the early 2000s when I was a teenager she's so hot but again 16 year old Young woman, and from there they just started trading diss tracks. Okay. And it, I, I think you can find probably a playlist on either Spotify or YouTube that will actually back to back the diss tracks between Eminem and Machine Gun Kelly. Every one of Eminem's are way better. Than your reply got the crowd yelling woo. so before you die let's see who can out petty who with your corny lines slimy roll out kelly ooh but i'm 45 and i'm still out selling you t- the umbrage i take with com- saying that machine gun kelly is like millennial eminem is that yes both were offensive in a lot of ways both like to play with like pushing people's buttons but eminem is actually a good rapper and Machine Gun Kelly. I'm going to say, is not a bad rapper. He's not. He's just not particularly good. Sure. Like, if I'm going to talk about, like, who takes up the mantle from Eminem, I'm more likely to call out, like, fucking Logic, probably. Or maybe, like, Yellow Wolf or something. Like, someone, someone more in that vein than goddamn Machine Gun Kelly.
0: Well, it's funny because, uh, and I'll let you go after saying this, but, like... I didn't know how he got his start and how he earned something that is genuinely, like, okay, props and respect. Because without hearing that, he feels like he should be one of the most obvious corporate plants in modern music history.
1: He, he should be like Iggy Azalea. Yeah. Who was an obvious corporate plant. I'll give him his flowers on that. I do. Um, that segues me, segues me nicely. Like, I, I want to I be clear. Up until Tickets to My Downfall... I considered MGK relatively innocuous. He was fine. I, You know, I thought it was shitty what he did with Haley Jade. And I think he got what he deserved with every Eminem diss track over and over and over again. But I didn't care that much about him beyond that. Sure. Like... I would not usually, like, I wouldn't turn him off if he was featuring on on a track, but, like, I didn't go out of my way to listen to his music. I wasn't a fan, but I didn't care that much. Where I came to loathe the man is his obvious culture vulturing of pop punk. Mm -hmm. I can believe that Machine Gun Kelly liked Blink-182 when he was a kid. I'm willing to believe that. Like, he's of the right age. But after, like, I sat down and listened to Tickets to My Downfall. And I have never heard such a vacuous, obvious attempt at aping a genre that he has no cred in, that he has only a superficial knowledge of at best, and is obviously cresting on an already underway wave of. I- the,
0: the the thing in this moment in time, the thing that TikTok is making fun of him right now is his covers of... Paramore's Misery Business, and Linkin Park's Numb, both of which are some of the most soulless, vapid, uninspired... If you're going to make a fucking cover, you need to have your own take and you need to make it your own and you need to have your own voice. And both of those covers do none of that. It is just like him supplanting in as the vocalist in these songs and not doing anything interesting and making them just bleh.
1: Exactly. And that's the thing. It's like, okay, if you're you're going to cover numb, Chester Bennington vocals are incredibly difficult to do. The only person I have ever seen do a, what I would consider a very good Lincoln Park cover, like vocally, is the dude from Stained. Hmm. I don't remember his name, Aaron something, who was actually Chester Bennington's friend. Yeah. And I can recall as a tribute to Chester in a concert... He did this acoustic version of one of their songs, um, Crawling. He did an acoustic cover of Crawling. He does not pretend to sound like Chester in it. He is doing his own vocal style. It very much sounds like Stained doing a cover of Linkin Park. But it's a good cover in that he is trying to do something interesting with it. Yeah. And the fact that it's a tribute to his friend helps that fact. I'm cool with that. MGK is this most it like he takes this song that has these really dynamic ranges and he does this with the Paramore cover as well. And he does this very almost not it's not quite monotone, but like Homie doesn't like span more than maybe a half an octave. Yeah. He and he's and it's pitch corrected. Every bit of it is fucking pitch corrected, to <laughs> Goddamn hell, I can hear it. Uh-huh. I don't even need to try that. There, okay. Everybody probably uses pitch correction. I have had it pointed out to me that like fucking Adele probably uses pitch correction, but I can't hear it. It's subtle. She's close. Yeah. I can hear the pitch correction on MGK covers, on MGK songs. It is god-fucking-awful. I talked about, when we did our uh, episode where I talked about Meet Me at the Altar, that there is a clear pop-punk revival of sorts happening. Um, I don't remember if I said this at the time, but I don't think pop-punk is going to... Be- become the dominant music force it was in the like late 90s to mid 2000s period. Like that was a period where a pop punk, a pop punk influence really kind of took over the mainstream. I don't think that's going to happen again. Sure. But we're having a revival where it is now taking up real estate in popular music again. And I think that that's great. And I'm pretty sure that MGK's management thought it was great, too. Yes. Because I don't, like, maybe he was the one who recognized this wave crest. Maybe. I don't know. But I listened, after listening to Tickets to My Downfall, I'm sitting here thinking, like, this is not a person who understands this music. He doesn't understand it lyrically. He doesn't understand it conceptually. He hooked up with Travis Barker as his major co-signer for it. Like, Travis Barker did all the drums and produced the album.
0: Well, and and I don't mean this with the disrespect that's going to come along. Travis Barker has become the village bicycle with uh, regard to who he is willing to collaborate with these days. This is
1: very true. And, like, okay, I like Bling 182, I promise. I don't say this with an interest in being... I, I am aware that there is a type of punk fan who is very gatekeepy and very shitty. And I don't say this with intention of being that. Mm. And most pop punk bands, I can, if they're, if they're a band I'm familiar with, I can point to their roots. Yeah. I can talk about Green Day cutting their teeth at the Gilman in Berkeley, California which is a very, very well-regarded all-ages punk club in that in Southern California. So many important bands came out of there. I can talk about Fallout Boy being born out of the hardcore scene in Chicago. Like Pete Wentz, like really... Re- Pete, uh, I think it Pete Wentz and Joe Tror basically meeting and hooking up in Race Trader, like that old band back in the day when Pete was filling in on bass. Like... It's, I, I can talk about the roots of some of these bands and the places that they came out of. Blink-182, even when they broke, actual punks, like people in the proper punk scene, hated them from the beginning because they were so obviously put together to ride that punk punk, punk, pop punk wave. This is hard to speak <laughs> um, And And here's the thing, don't get me wrong. I think Travis Barker is an incredible drummer. Yes. I think I think Blink is a really great band. I love them musically. And they don't have real punk cred. Sure. Is real punk cred terribly important? No, not necessarily. It's not the most important thing. But that really is his biggest cosign. Like, the only other thing that I've been able to find is in the, like, deluxe edition of Tickets to My Downfall, Burt McCracken guests on a song Hmm. not on the main version mind you in a deluxe bonus track when you cut Burt McCracken or when Burt McCracken is not featuring on the main part of your album and it's one of the better tracks yeah you don't care that much
0: no uh, we were hanging out the other day and uh, listening to a Spotify playlist of Modern pop punk. I think it's pop punk is not dead on Spotify and this track comes on and it's this Avril Lavigne featuring Machine Gun Kelly track and I remember it was playing and I turned to you and I went, oh no, Alex, I actually like this and I knew how you felt when we talked about Post Malone and I talked about how circles
1: is a jam. And no, and I and I admitted to you. I was like, I like circles. I like sunflower. Those are the two Post Malone songs where I'm like, this is a dope ass song, and I'm not gonna even lie about that. Uh, I like Willow on fucking emo tra- girl, even tra- though
0: emo girl, transparent soul, yeah, yeah. Well,
1: emo girl being the song that she does with Machine Gun Kelly, oh, right? Yeah. Like, I like Willow's parts on that, even though I don't think that's a very good song. I think she has a very interesting vocal performance, and I think his is dull and boring. Sure. The song itself has a lot of potential, and if he weren't delivering it the way that it he does, it would be better, flat out. Sure. He's just not a, he's just not a good singer, period. Um, I discovered this just this morning, and I sent you this TikTok— There's a TikTok I found, and if I can't, if I can, I'm going to try and link to it in the notes. But um, there's a Guitar Tech who was doing a TikTok, and he was looking at the someone had brought in their um, Machine Gun Kelly signature Schecter Telecaster, um, which is a type of guitar, Uh, and just to not get super in the weeds of this, this is a very bare-bones guitar. There are not a lot of controls on it. There's one pickup on it, there's a volume control, and there is a kill switch. And do you know what a kill switch is in a guitar?
0: Not the thing the guys in the metal band engage.
1: <sighs> so a kill switch, which is frequently used in metal, actually, is uh, a mechanism on the... Gu- I'm so mad at you. is <laughs> a... <laughs> Is a mechanism on the guitar that allows you to suddenly shift off the volume. Okay. Um, any to- like, if you ever think about those Tom Morello solos where he's kind of doing a DJ scratch, he doesn't have a kill switch on that guitar. What he does is he has a makeshift kill switch because he has two pickups, each with independent volumes. So we will turn the volume all the way down on one of them have the volume all the way up on the other, and use his pickup selector to quickly shift back and forth between the volume with the, the pickup with the volume down and the one with the volume up. So it's a makeshift kill switch. Uh-huh. Um, but it lets you kind of have those kinds of cool phasery effects. But the point is, if a kill switch is engaged, this there is... Fuck your smile right now
0: <laughs> please go on if
1: the kill switch is engaged
0: this dissolution.
1: then there's no signal coming from the guitar it is completely silent and this guitar tech was like interesting that there is a kill switch on this guitar and he's like machine gun kelly doesn't play much metal it's usually a fairly metal or like rap rock kind of sound uh, or, device used for something like that. So, he looked up a bunch of concert footage of Machine Gun Kelly playing. He's like, he, first he looked at the music video and he's like, the kill switch is on while he's playing. Okay, it's a music video. He's not really playing in the music video anyway, so that's fine. Then he pulled up concert footage of Machine Gun Kelly clearly playing guitar, but his kill switch is engaged. Mm. There is no. Anything coming from it? He's
0: Ashley Simpsoning it.
1: He is Ashley Simpsoning. I'm sure that he turns it on to do like to play like the in a couple of the songs have like guitar intros where it's like a couple of power chords coming in. He hasn't. He has another guitarist in his band. Mm. But yeah, I'm pretty sure that after after whatever that point is, he just hits his kill switch and pretends to play, which is the most fucking poser ass bullshit. Like if you're if you're not going to play guitar through your show, fine. I'm not mad about that actually. Billy Joe Armstrong doesn't play guitar through his whole show. Green Day has an extra guitar player, and sometimes he wants to do Holiday and run out into the crowd and just have have his microphone. That is fine. But don't try and fucking sell yourself like you're like that's what you're doing. Sure, of course. I don't want to be on here, like, screaming about this the entire time. It's just, pop punk is a genre with roots that date back all the way to the beginnings of punk. You know, the Ramones were huge bubblegum pop fans. The whole point of, like, their sound was them trying to recreate the Phil Spector wall of sound. They wanted to be the Ronettes, but they were four white dudes who just had access to loud guitars. Cool. I mentioned during our discussion of Meet Me at the Altar that those roots look different now, especially with the Internet. That's a band that I give full credential to. And they st- and they all were based in different states and they met on the Internet and they collaborated on the Internet. And they didn't come out of a local scene. I think that that's really fascinating and important. But this is an album by a person who was... I'm conjecturing, told by a stack of execs that there's a revival of a genre and they think that he can use his whiteness and his existent fame to cash in on it, especially if they can do stuff like hire Travis Barker to produce and get Burt McCracken on the deluxe bonus track. And by the way, Willow is doing her own version of this, which I, I haven't dived that deep into Willow, but I will say this. She's at least good as a musician in this genre. If she's doing a transparent cash grab, I'm not sure. I don't think Olivia Rodrigo is doing a transparent cash grab when she does pop punk stuff. I think she's legitimately a fan, but her album is not just pop punk. Machine Gun Kelly did two pop punk kind of tracks on his last album and then said, okay, these have done well. I'm riding this crest. People are playing my stuff. I'm going to just do an entire album of this shit. I'm not going to say he didn't deserve his spot at the hip-hop table. You mentioned this yourself, you know, the fact that he spent years building up his reputation. He got solid cosigns from important hip-hop acts like Diddy, Pusha T, Meek Mill, Wiz Khalifa, Tech N9ne, Waka Flocka Flame, and even DMX himself. He did solid enough sales and got good enough reviews on this by people I respect as reviewers Mm -hmm. to carve a respectable legacy in this genre. All of that is valid. But after he switched to a genre he had no clearly articulated background in, taking his biggest cosign from Barker, a man who, as I said, has never had much real punk cred outside of being a very good musician, and turning in an effort that doesn't even sound up to par with the pop-punk inspired songs by pop artists like Olivia Rodrigo, it's just disrespectful to a genre I love. I was content to let him be a hip-hop artist that I didn't care that much about. I didn't hate him. I didn't like him. I was fine with him. But this is so transparently cash-grabby. It's bad his his pop punk tracks like his even if the tracks have merit he is the weakest link on every goddamn one of them sure and he's and, and i'm sorry i'm not okay with punk artists who don't play their instruments when they're pretending to play their instruments john Lydon sang he can't play an instrument but he sang on every one of those sex pistols albums he sang horribly He sounded terrible, the fucking dude from the Dead Kennedys is an awful singer, but they're punk, and they don't pretend to be anything less, and they don't pretend to play shit that they're not really playing. And so I have no respect for this man playing in a genre that I love, and I'm seeing TikToks of little teeny boppers who talk about how much they love pop punk, and they love these MGK tracks... And they think that this is the genre, sure. when there are really interesting, vibrant new pop punk acts coming out. And I I don't have I don't have it in me anymore, Andy. I can't be okay with this. Like any of you who are thinking about looking at MGK's fucking pop punk tracks, I beg you, listen to meet me at the altar, listen to Magnolia Park.
0: Oh, there you go. Absolutely.
1: Listen listen to interesting new pop punk bands. They are out there. They're doing great work. So that is a me. Of,
0: a lot of people say he is the modern day Eminem. I propose he is the modern day Vanilla Ice. Fuck him.
1: <laughs> oh i appreciate that andrew i appreciate that so much i'm Um,
0: so glad yes let's go ahead and move on you did the uh breakdown at the beginning so i will introduce our question for the episode once again uh every episode of love hate relationship we like to take yours and the internet's relationship questions and provide our perfectly unqualified advice today you supplied the question um, coming to us from our friends at relationship.txt.
1: Actually, you supplied this. You DM'd this to me, like, a couple weeks ago. Oh,
0: okay. I, I had forgotten that. Well, good on me. <laughs> Apparently, I, a 27-year-old female, was unintentionally doing a sexy baby voice to a male coworker on Zoom, and now my boyfriend, 28, is upset. I work from home, and my boyfriend was in the room while I was taking a call. His ears perked up as I started talking because, according to him, I was talking weirdly. In my mind, I, honest to God, was just speaking normally and was trying to give affirmation in a confident and reassuring way. I had been getting out of affirmations such as, mm-hmm, and yeah, which my boyfriend thought sounded like sultry moans. I also apparently changed my pitch to go lower and my tone gentler. I make my voice like this sometimes because I've trained as a therapist, and this is how we're taught to speak. I was on call with a man and a woman, but the man was the main talker, so I was mostly addressing him. No one on the call flagged anything up. Now my boyfriend is upset because he thinks I have this subconscious thing where I try to talk in a sexy baby voice to men. I'm not sure whether he's right, but now I'm sure as hell going to try to speak in a flat monotone voice whenever I'm speaking to men to avoid coming across as flirtatious. Has anyone experienced something similar? If so, any advice, please? Okay,
1: so we need a name for this person. It's an example of, like, a couple where there's a jealous male figure and a female... Presenting person who maybe doesn't know how she's coming across, or maybe the boyfriend is overly... I don't know. There's a few different ways we can look at this. There's a few.
0: I mean, the first thing would be um, the bundies, but I think we already used them before. Mm. Um, I am trying to find something we can use here. Yeah, it's kind of a, a hard niche because, honestly, the first thing I thought of was the guy who uh, was on Zoom. and This was like a state senator or something, and he accidentally had a, a kitten filter. So it was it was famous that he had to sit there and tell a judge on Zoom, I am not a cat. I am a human being. Hmm. Okay, um, so this makes me think there's a, a, a series on Netflix. It's kind of like... Um, Uh, To All the Boys I've Loved Before, uh, a spinoff of that. There's a film series called The Kissing Booth, starring Jamie King and Jacob Elordi. Um, And in The Kissing Booth, Jacob Elordi's character, who is named, let me remember this here, uh, Noah, uh, comes across as pretty jealous and unnecessarily possessive a lot of times in The Will They Won't They of it all. Okay. So, we've got here... Noah and L from The Kissing Booth.
1: Okay, we've got L and we've got Noah. True, and it's not just me. He's been going around telling all the guys not to ask you out for a while now.
0: You do realize that you're not my dad, right? Tuppen is a player. So are you! And that's why I know he's wrong for you. I did read, so I would go ahead and defer to you for an answer first. Okay,
1: so I think See the balancing act is so difficult here, because there's kind of there's one definite problem and one possible I don't even want to say problem issue, um, because L I believe you when you say that you had no idea anything like this was happening. Yeah. The problem is we don't necessarily know for sure that the thing was happening because the thing that is definitely kind of fucked up is Noah's whole, like, I am upset at you for subconsciously doing a sexy baby voice to men. You say that you've trained as a therapist. You don't really say what your job is, but you... Apparently, we're talking to both a man and a woman. Um, anyone who's ever worked customer service uh, or had to deal with clients knows you have voices you put on. Like, yes. it's, it's a trend on, like, it, it, like, I feel like I've seen the comedy sketch multiple times, whether it's on TikTok or even maybe an SNL or a Mad TV type of thing. Where it's you put on your customer service voice, like I mean, hell, th- um, sorry to bother you is marginally like hinged oh, as a story.
0: We couldn't use sorry to bother you. <laughs> eh,
1: it's fine, um, but yeah, like you've got you've got this situation here where you've got you 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 might have a voice that you use now. You say that you put this kind of tone together from your training as a therapist, and your boyfriend is saying, It's sexy baby voice. This is, this hurts my little fifis. And it's a little bit like. There's, my instinct here is to go, Dude, respect your partner's work. Yes. Um, because I. It's worth maybe asking, hey, do you know that you you were doing what sounds to me like being kind of flirtatious? And, you know, if you really wanted to delve into that, I would probably say don't go into a flat, monotonous voice. Instead, maybe just for your own sake, record yourself. And you know what? You can record just your side of the conversation if there's a privacy question there. But just record yourself without really thinking about it and listen back and see if that's there. It is... It is possible. And if you want to do something about that, cool. That can be your decision. You probably shouldn't be making that decision because your boyfriend is uncomfortable with the way that you talk to your own fucking clients, and he should really put on his big boy panties and get over himself.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I couldn't have said it better. I think we're on the exact same page. The, The idea of a work voice is just such a thing. And I would go so far to say that if your work voice comes across in a sultry or flirtatious manner. I don't know that that's necessarily appropriate unless it is coming across in an overt way to your clients, to the people that matter.
1: You mean inappropriate? Yes. Okay.
0: Inappropriate. Cool. I don't think that that's necessarily inappropriate unless that is uh, making your clients or the people that matter feel uncomfortable in that way. Um, It it does feel like just such a dramatic thing to – specifically call it a sexy baby voice that speaks to an insecurity to me that i think needs to be addressed by noah because he is absolutely the asshole here i know this isn't that kind of question (laughs) (laughs) um recording i think is a great idea i i absolutely think that going into a a flat monotone is a bad idea, and I, I get the sense that L is like, oh my God, I don't want to come across inappropriately, and I certainly don't want to come across as uh, flirting when I am not meaning to, and and that's fine, you know. If if L didn't even want to risk it, I think a thing to do would be okay. Try to be more intentional with what your voice is, but. Going just straight monotone feels like a retreat to me in a way that is absolutely not fair for Elle to have to retreat because Noah is uncomfortable and planted the seed in Elle's head that she's doing a sexy little baby voice.
1: There's also, like, there's a misogynist in the room here. Yes. Which is, you can go into a flat, monotonous tone, but then... You could be interpreted as being cold or frigid or any of those other terms that are frequent. And and I'm aware, by the way, I'm very aware we are two cis males sitting here talking about this, and I apologize for that, but I think it is worth calling out, like, if you are dealing with, I don't even want to say a shitty enough man, a man who has been, or even a woman, who has been societally programmed with all of the inherent misogyny that exists within our just the the way that we treat women and it's not just men who treat women this way it is often other women there is no winning here you are always the madonna or you are the whore it it is that is why they call it the madonna whore complex Mm -hmm. like you can either be viewed as the frigid bitch or as the like sultry lustful like I fuck you eyes, person, and there might depending on who you are talking to, there might not be a middle ground there. So just immediately going to flat monotonous to you does not necessarily communicate neutrality, because to a certain type of receiver of that communication, neutrality is frigidness yeah. and meanness, and there it, it is very real here that you might not have a winner. A winner in any way with changing your voice to be received a certain way for me it's better to just go with your instincts and if recording yourself would help you more better understand yourself great but again you need to change for yourself if that's the case yes
0: in a potential lose-lose situation the one thing you can do is be true to yourself and not let anybody else make your decisions and how you act for you. That's not what anybody should be doing, regardless of the situation. Yeah. So. We hope that this helps out, you know, we're gonna post this the same way we always do. We hope that this might help you, listener, if you happen to have some similar problem to this and just so happens that this advice can help you. Um, you know, that would be really great, and that's something I always hope we can do is that our audience can take the lessons we give even if they don't send them in themselves. If you do have a question you wanna send in yourself and you do have a, a lesson that you need learning from Alex and I in a perfectly unqualified way, you know, we love to take those. We love to take any relationship situation, be it a workplace thing, a boyfriend thing. And it doesn't even have to be anything like those. But we will take any and all questions at lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter. And we promise
1: we'll read them. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, You can also rate and or review us on any and or all of those. It apparently helps people find the show, I'm told. I don't know. Maybe that's a lie. Uh, You can also follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's LHRPod. Um, you can hear us talk about like send one tweet about Ukraine and then fuck off and talk about Mads Mikkelsen <laughs> um, or any of our other topics that we've previously discussed. You can also DM us your questions there.
0: That's right. We try to keep our Twitter as a a fun place and something enjoyable while maintaining a a level of seriousness. But (laughs) you can also follow me, Andy Bowell, on Twitter at JovoCop2113. You can follow me on Twitter just to find uh, my Warhammer and mini painting models at Andy's Minis. And you can follow my other podcast, Cult Fiction, where I watch cult movies with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson at Cult Fiction Cast. Uh, You can find cult fiction everywhere that you can find LHR.
1: That's right. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, LieChess, and chess.com at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. As ever, please tell your enemies.